probably the most important point of my entire life. I looked up the stairs and there was a door with a samurai on it. And I was like, should I go up those stairs and see what's up there or not? Well, luckily I did. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What's up, you gorgeous listeners? It's your boy, Topo Chico, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. Today's episode is with the chef of my favorite restaurant in Austin called Uchiko. His name is Tyson Cole. I reached out to Tyson because I was curious how someone runs such an impressive restaurant. He's also been able to compete on Iron Chef and has won a ton of awards, especially the James Beard Award for the Southwest. And what's even crazier about it is how was the head of the most popular Japanese restaurant in Austin and is also rated nationally a white guy? So Tyson was super nice, and I felt very grateful he was able to share his story with us. So here are three major takeaways from the episode today. One, how did Tyson go from being a dishwasher to one of the nation's top chefs? So learn about the path that he took. Second, how to turn your talent into something profitable. And third, how Tyson does things differently with his hiring. You'll learn those three things and a bunch more. Enjoy. I know you were doing art, but then how did you think taking the art to sushi? I never grabbed why you went to Kyoto in the first place. I was actually looking for a job. I was working as a manager at a grocery store in South Lamar, which serendipitously is next door to where Loro is right now. It's crazy story. It's not crazy. But I was working there and the store got bought out and I was making $18 an hour. And they said, you can stay as a cashier and we'll pay you eight fifty. And I said, no, so I quit. And I didn't have a job for like almost two months. I spent like a few days trying to find a job. My girlfriend was like, you got to find a job or we're done. We have no place to live. And so I went downtown and then I had this epiphany, not epiphany, just idea that maybe I could be a bartender. And so I used to go to this place called the Elephant Room. Yeah. It's the coolest jazz club ever. So I could listen to jazz and work and have a cool job. Elephant Room is in the basement ground floor and then there's a second floor where Kyoto is. And I'd never been to Kyoto, knew Kyoto was there, nothing about it. So I went down the stairs to the basement, yanked the door to go into the elephant room and they were closed. And I was like, God, I was pissed, right? Went back up the stairs to ground level and then probably the most important point of my entire life, I looked up the stairs and there was a door with a samurai on it. And I was like, should I go up those stairs and see what's up there or not? Luckily I did. I went up the stairs, opened the door, and there were two women in kimono standing there. And they were like, you know, must It's like, I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. I was like, how you doing? And it's like, what do you want? Are you table for one? I'm like, no, like, are you hiring? No, we're not hiring. I'm like, please. How about just lunchtime? And they said, one of them, her name is Rico. She went back to the kitchen, came back, maybe wait. I waited about 10 minutes, came back. And she said, can you start tomorrow? And I got a job there. Waited tables at lunch and washed dishes. And that was it. Did she fire someone? What did she go back and check? <laughs> I don't know what she checked. I don't know what she checked. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. Just crazy that that happened to find the rest of my life from there. And again, once I started working there, every day I was like, wow, wow, wow. Like the food, wow, the people, wow. I was just like, amazing. What if you went into like a burger place? <laughs> <laughs> burger kind of soup. I know, right? I thought I was going to work at a grocery store. Like I was doing pretty well at Apple Tree. I was working. <laughs> I wonder whether you're a perfectionist, if you still would have applied that in different roles, if you would have ended up doing the grocery or wherever else you would have taken that. I'd like to think so. I mean, my father was a Marine drill sergeant, and my mother was a very uh, inattentive, still is today. 
<laughs> and so the way I was raised, I was pretty much perfectionist and hard worker. Again, I was just blessed to find Japanese food and sushi and apply it to that. So it was cool to have that piece fit together. Combined with the fact that all the tactile things I'd done as a kid, played sports. So I was pretty good with the knife once I started. Eye-hand coordination. The ability to talk to people too. Sushi chef is all those things simultaneously. You're a host, you're a chef, you're a cook, you're friend. a creator, friend. So you did all in real time. And so I was born to be a sushi chef. Or what was it about sushi that you enjoyed? I was trying to be an artist my whole life before that. I tried to be a painter. I was a writer as well. It was really expensive. It wasn't sustainable. And then when I got a job at a Japanese restaurant originally and started working with them side by side and just the level of respect they had for each other and the culture that they really all had this complete buy-in to about food is life and we're going to respect it. And suddenly I'm immersed in that and they're taking care of me at the restaurant. I'm sleeping there between lunch and dinner and the food is amazing. And I never had the kind of food before. It was just life-changing. Then from there, I went to me becoming friends with Sushi Chef and us becoming pretty much best friends. And we're hanging out every day, hanging out at night, watching VHS tapes about Japanese stuff, <laughs> trying to learn Japanese. Eventually, it was like a tipping point where was, watching him work was just enthralling. The knives and the speed and the dexterity and the skill. And I was like, that's such a freaking cool job. And then pretty much after that, I was like, can I make sushi? And they're like, no way, you're white. <laughs> <laughs> so I did the beginning in the kitchen only, where nobody could see me. Is this Kyoto or Mushushi? Mm, at Kyoto. Kyoto, by the way, had the craziest happy hour. It did. It was crazy. Why did they go out of business? I mean, the couple that owned it, and it was two Japanese couples, one sold to the other couple, but they had it for like 20 years, I think. I don't know what happened at the end of the day. I was thinking about that. And I'm curious to hear more about your journey from there to where you are now, but your restaurants have been around how long? Uchi now is? 15. 15. How does that happen versus other restaurants where they're making a few years? The first thing would be when we opened Uchi, I was pretty animate that I wanted to be the best. I wanted to have the best restaurant anywhere. And because I was like, why wouldn't you think like that? And so I tried to get the best product and the best people and create the best systems. The fuel for that was all based on the food and the people. And, you know, where I come from before, it was like you were an employee and none of the staff had any buy-in and they just came to work and clocked in and clocked out. Later on, other people have the same idea. Danny Meyer, for example, like this enlightened hospitality to where if you take care of your staff as much or more than your guests or also with your guests, that's where thing starts and it will grow organically from there. That's why in the beginning, Uchi was like, basically, I want everybody to fall in love with the food like I did. So I was like, okay, with the staff, we're going to feed everybody every day, all the time, the best product. Not staff meal, not like leftovers and stuff that's going to go bad. It's like, let's order food for the need as well. Great. Three things. Great product. And same with the customers. Like, in the back door, I wanted the best product coming in every day where the staff would be excited. Like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this. Like, really get them, like, wake up in the morning when to go to work. Over time, that idea grew into people really buying in, people creating their own restaurant and them holding each other accountable. It's been amazing and so curiously awesome to watch happen. thing that you just thought with this little idea becoming this, now we're up to six, seven restaurants from that idea. It's pretty cool. Never imagined that. What did you imagine? I mean, in the beginning, I just wanted to have creative freedom. And I wanted to, again, show people what I had learned and have them fall in love with it like I did. 
not ever thinking that would become anything like a business model. That was never my plan. I mean, lo and behold, sushi is probably the best restaurant model ever because of the economics of it. You're selling food by the ounce, bite of sushi for $8 to $12. It's a great model for open restaurants. <laughs> you know what I mean? I never thought that. So my partner, Daryl, and I both never got into Uchi to make money. It was more like he loved sushi, I made sushi, and we wanted to be a very awesome restaurant, very unpretentious and just make great food and make people happy. And with that mindset, I think it just kind of grew from there. I never wanted to open more than one. Even the second one, Uchiko, I was very, didn't want to do it. Didn't want to risk it. Risk what? Risk possible failure. I mean, in the beginning, it was like, well, how close can it be? How far away should it be? Like, are we going to cannibalize our sales? Where are people going to go? So it was a long conversation. It took many years. I mean, it took, I think, almost six, seven years. After Uchi to open in Chico. It's interesting because then from there, it's like a lot more restaurants after that. Yeah. Well, it's all about the people. I mean, Uchiko is four miles away from Uchi. And it was hard because we had to find uh, like a swatch of land that fit. Yeah. So I was driving by for almost a year every day, like looking, looking. How about that house? How about that building? You know, and eventually we found that space. And that took a couple of years to develop and open. Really? Yeah. Five years in, we were looking. It took a couple of years to open Co. It's amazing because I work in the web world where it's just instant. You know, hey, let's build out this feature. It's live and you yeah, get stuff gosh. out. Yeah, gosh. There's too many moving parts in the restaurant world to do that. What are some of the things you think people don't know about opening a restaurant? It's the hardest business there is. The failure rate is super high, right? It's like 75% because the balance of you go in and like you have this idea and you're going to make this food, but you have to balance like the costs. So the costs of most restaurants, it's the two costs for like food and labor, right? They could come in a certain percentage so you can still make money. A lot of people spend too much on one or the other. And then you're like, where are the money? What do we do now? I think the rule of thumb is like, you need to have 18 months working capital, opening a restaurant. You like get it right. Yeah, so you can stay open. How did you balance getting the best fish though with also trying to make a profit? In the beginning, we only used my purveyors that I had from Mrs. Shino. I was calling them all the time. And then over the first two or three years, we met a lot of other purveyors from the East Coast, two or three new Japanese purveyors. It was basically like, I use the analogy a lot of times, it's like I would assume like a high-end, super successful drug dealer, right? And you sold the most drugs, then you would get more shipments because you're selling the most, right? I couldn't find the fish at all, but then once we started selling a lot, then instead of me calling, my phone started ringing. And they would call me because the fisherman would have the fish, and then suddenly it would like totally flipped upside down, and it was like every day we're getting calls from Japan, from the East Coast, from the West Coast. And just like, we never said no. We said yes, 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 because we were busier every day. And so first five years, we sales increased monthly. So 60 straight months. For five years? Uh-huh. Yeah, crazy. That must have been nice. <laughs> it was crazy. You're like opening restaurants It was easy. crazy. It was crazy. And that was my thing. It was so fun because I woke up every day, just could not wait to go to work. Getting this incredible product in every day, you know, these purveyors, not just fish, but everything. Finding the best possible product and having the freedom to do that, it's awesome. Why don't you the other restaurant owners do that? I mean, it sounds so simple when you it's say expensive. it. expensive. Again, we're blessed to have sushi that... Margins are... Margins are great. The kitchen can be really creative, more creative than the regular kitchen because we can afford to buy the best product because of the sushi. And um, I think that's probably the most important key to achieve success. The direct one-on-one? Mm, for sure. And it relates to sushi itself because we don't sell big, huge tray boats of sushi. It dies, <laughs> sort of like that. We serve it in small increments, two, three, four pieces at a time. 
One thing I was curious about with that, especially as an owner, like I was looking at Loro's reviews on Yelp and I'm like, it didn't even open in those reviews. I was like, what the hell? Because the reviews are pretty harsh. I'm like, they haven't even barely opened. Yeah, that was a charity event. It was for No Kid Hungry. And we did bites for the people that paid. It was like $100 a person, but the $100 went to the charity. But people were just like gouging us, like they didn't have the real experience. I'm like, it's not the real experience <laughs> oh yet. You well, know? Well, and that's what I was wondering with the one-on-one, especially with Uchi when you started it, and yeah. Loro and all that, the restaurant. Like, how do you deal with feedback? What do you take in? What do you say? Like, okay, these reviews are actually, I agree, or, you know, how have you processed all that? Oh, it's super valuable. Like, if you're in New York or somewhere and your big review comes out in the Times and it makes or breaks your restaurant, those kind of conversations, I think that's great. The people that know the most should review you, and that's the biggest valuable information you could ever have. Trying to whittle it down to people online and websites and giving their own reviews, different conversation, but still a viewpoint to listen to. At least step back and think about it. You can't base all your decisions off that, but it's good to have. As opposed to being on an island and knowing nothing and going in blind. Yeah, I was curious how have you changed anything on your restaurants or even like Laura now or anything? Yeah, I mean, over the years, when we opened, for example, two years in, we got our first review and it was two out of five stars. It was slightly scathing about the kitchen food and I was pissed. I was pissed. But the reviewer that wrote it was right. The three or four things he called out, he was right. I mean, the next day I went and tried those things. He was right. They were terrible. Of the four dishes he said? Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Maybe I should work at the kitchen <laughs> more, you know? So yeah, that's so valuable when you get that feedback. And I think we work off critique right now every day because most of our food at all our restaurants right now is made by the staff. People growing throughout the ranks from line cook to cook to sous chef to chef de cuisine to executive chef, whatever. Over that time, they're making food, learning how to cook and creating dishes. And so our menu is half is a special sheet that changes every day and half is a core menu that never changes. That special sheet is an opportunity for our staff to be creative. You have to start to see people blossom through that process. There's people that are pretty good, people that are not bad. Then there's the, that diamond in the rough that's like, oh my gosh, that person's amazing, you know? And they just get more amazing, more amazing. And then later on, they become someone that becomes very successful. That I'm with Paul, actually. How did that happen? Paul, it was Paul and Philip and I worked for the first seven years of Uchi every day together. It was a great combination of talent, working with them side by side. Who's Phil? Philip Spear. He was our director of culinary. He was with Uchi for the first 10 years. He's got a place called Bonami right now. It's on Burnett Road. You should check it out. It's really good. So that was the beginning. It's like that part of him bringing his pastry skills in and my sushi skills, combining those, and Paul in between us. I was the guy that constantly, almost daily challenged them. Like come in, like, we're going to make this, we're going to make that, we're going to change this. Like, I want this to be like this. And they go, chef, that's impossible. I'm like, I don't care. Make it happen. Like, really, really animated about what I, my vision was for you to become. And what was that, the best? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what a great format to where you, you can you have carte blanche in the kitchen to get on the phone or anything you want. Okay, go ahead, do that. Well, we have great product. We have great food. Because sim- food is simple. If you get the best product, you don't have to do much to it. You really don't. You really don't. Seriously. That's fair. We get it probably relates to a lot of things. It's incredible crab from Alaska and it's super like live. You take it out, put it with some lemon and that's it. It's delicious. Was it obvious in the beginning when you guys were working together? You're like, wow, these guys have something special versus other people you were working with? Because obviously Paul went on to do some pretty impressive things. Yeah, it was pretty obvious. Paul's a great cook. He is a great palate and makes delicious food. I feel like when I was with them, I was more like a producer or a director, and they were the actors because I would see where they were at, I would see where they were going, and then I would take that and I would say, 
we should go this direction with it. Maybe you should do this with it. Why don't we try this? And so that was the fun part. Because over the time, we had a rapport where it just became successful. And the food got better and better and better. And by the time we opened Uchiko, we were like, we're going to kill it. You already know? Mm -hmm, pretty much. How do you give them autonomy? I think people think, oh, yeah, my people have a bunch of autonomy. And then I'm like, no, you micromanage them. How did you encourage that? Was it just like, hey, the menu's open, half the menu's always going to be open, so you can do whatever you want? I mean, you, you set up the systems to where you can do that. It's still got to be organized. I think that it's not absolute autonomy. There has to be like some parameters. A good example is I used to make a list of this month, here are the 10 things we're not going to have. So don't order those because they don't fit Uchi. And the more I did that, this format, this box started to form. And everybody knew that what fit inside that Uchi box. Like people like Kaz Edwards, our culinary director right now, concept chef. He's been with us since the beginning, 14 years. He knows that box like the back of his hand. When he tastes specials that we're trying to make, he'll go, no, no, that's not Uchi. He knows immediately. People have autonomy, but only in that box. But lastly, it's super valuable to have those parameters. Because without them, you can't succeed. Like if I said, just go write a song, you have to have some basis of like, rules or a goal or what it fits in because otherwise it's, creativity is too hard it's too wide open you know as you're saying i was like what is uchi uchi is a home it means home i guess the metaphor for that fits doesn't it and it's a home for so many people now i mean we're growing people's lives i think we're going to be almost to 500 staff 500 people now what is as you said fun parts was like you and paul and philip were creative what were some of the least fun parts as you were getting some of the restaurants open or uchi specifically you know what it's almost like a marriage there's a lot of fights and it's cool, though, because like as a chef, the chef owner of Uchi, and working together with them, and it's even true today with Kaz and some other people, I'm not going to be standing above you and telling you what to do. I think it needs to be more side by side. There needs to be a certain level of humility. And with that, if I was wrong, they would call me out and vice versa. That's essential. So otherwise, they wouldn't like me. It's the key is to them to know that we're on the same playing field with the same goal. There were times where I'd be like, we should do this. And they'd be like, no, that's a terrible idea. And I'd be like, okay, I'd back off a bit. But sometimes it would be a similar conversation and I would know that it was essential and I wouldn't bat out. And they'd be like, it's going to take this long and this much, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, I don't care. Make it happen. Having a vision, that's probably an important part too, is having vision for what the restaurant could become. Especially now, it's amazing to see how much talent we have. How have you been able to attract those kind of people? Do you think it's because like you put out, hey, here's my restaurant, here's what I stand for, and it's attracted people that resonate with that? I think organically over time, the people that work for you attract the people. Uchiko is a good example. The staff there is such a family, and they have such pride in that place. I mean, they're an Uchi restaurant, but Uchiko is Uchiko. And if you ask them, like, you go there right now, like, which place is better? Uchiko. They will tell you hands down. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? How do you think they became like that? Hatfields and McCoys, rivalry in the beginning. We have a Uchi Bowl every year. They play each other in the Super Bowl. <laughs> it's a friendly rivalry. It's awesome. Well, I was also curious, do you think the fact how much they care is because they have the autonomy and then they're also working on a great thing? Oh, for sure. They have pride in the place because it's a great product. Each other, they sell it together. They love the guests. The guests push them up, lift them up every day. It's a win-win for everybody. Never imagined any of that. You said you met Daryl at Musashino? Uh-huh. So how did it transform? Because I'm, I'm also thinking, you know, Austin 2005? Oh, three. And you opened Uchido. Yes. I'm trying to imagine back then, which it wasn't as popular, the city wasn't as crowded, the yeah. development, and you're like, I'm going to open a medium to high-end priced sushi restaurant. I knew him for about eight or 10 years before we opened. 
he saw me rise up the ranks at all the restaurants at uh, Kyoto and at Musashino. He'd seen me go from the bottom to the middle to being the lead chef. One day, he was just like, have you ever thought about being in a restaurant? And I said, hell yeah, that's what I want to do. And so we started looking pretty quickly after that. You weren't concerned that there wasn't going to be a market for it here? Because I can see you move. Like, why didn't you move to San Francisco? Or I actually moved to New York for a while. Worked at a place called Bond Street. Right before that, I thought I was going to move to New York and work at Bond Street for a year and just live in New York and then move to Tokyo. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I was young and dumb. Was 20, no, that sounds 20, great. 27, 28, yeah. But New York was hard. Hard play life, harder job, better people. The chefs there were ridiculous. I went to Bond Street. I was like, I thought I was pretty good. And I got there, I realized I wasn't. It put me in my place pretty quickly. Really quickly, actually. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to Austin. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I thought you'd say maybe you like stuck through it and you like stayed there. Because you stayed there two no. years. You did stick sometime. You were there two years? No, I was only at Bond Street for like less than a month. <laughs> oh, wow. How come you didn't want to stick and like fight through? And I didn't have a good place to live. And I lived at two different places on people's couches. And one place is in Brooklyn, this studio apartment, paper thin walls, loud, just a terrible place to live. And then the work was just Bond Street's four floors. The chefs were amazing. It would have taken me 10 years to work the ranks up there. So I was like, this isn't going to work. I thought I was on the other end of, that, end of that already, you know? So the timing was off. And thank God I didn't stay. Did you think instead of coming back to Austin, moving to Tokyo at that moment? No, coming back to Austin was easier because I didn't have any money. <laughs> and then I had a friend. We were going to open a restaurant. I went to LA and looked for a couple of weeks, concepts. We looked a little bit, got an investor that fell through, had another partner that fell through. So that was the third person. By the time we talked. He approached you? Uh-huh. I was very ready by that point. And I mean, I still had quite a few regular guests that I had met from Mrs. Shino, being there for almost eight years that I thought would be a good core clientele when we opened. I had them in the bag, but come to find out it wasn't that many people. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, first couple of years, I was still pretty scared after we opened. Oh, really? Even though it was growing every month? Yeah, but slowly. Because I was pretty ignorant. I made some bad decisions, bad choices in the beginning. For hiring or uh, stuff? No, just like logistical things. Like one, I didn't want to have walk-in cooler. So I thought food went to die there. I only wanted regions. Once it got busy, we had to have walk-in cooler because we had to have space to put the product. So I had to do that. And then I didn't want valet because I thought it was pretentious. I was stupid. Valet is great. People love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then over time, I had a staff, brand new staff, five guys that I found Flew a guy over from Japan to go to the sushi shows. I had another Japanese guy. It was all brand new people. And I was working every day, wake up till midnight every day. Like just all in. It's intense. But I mean, it was fun. I did everything. I would get up in the morning and I would get my car and I'd sold my car. I bought this truck for $1,500 to use the money to buy my wife's wedding ring. And then I would get up. I had a, a Chevy Suburban. I'd get up in the morning and I would drive every day. I would go to all three Asian markets. And I would go to Central Market, and three days a week, I would pick up the fish at the airport. I was just determined to find the best stuff every day. Like, that was my goal. I could not have done that today. I'm too old. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Do you miss cooking regularly, like you were back then? I miss making sushi regularly. The physicality of it, I don't miss. It's a pretty hard job. Just the cutting and... Standing over a cutting board for 10 hours a day? Yeah, I don't miss that at all. I mean, I loved it for 10 years. It's great. Do you ever think of doing more of like a simpler uchiko 
which I guess is what Uchiko was supposed to be, but like a you know, more lunch casual place. We just opened a place in Dallas called Uchi Ba, which is upstairs to Uchi, and it's basically an Uchi bar. That could possibly be a concept like that. Smaller, more intimate, less square feet, less moving parts. So if you ever did, it'd be something like that. But it won't be outside the sushi world. Sushi's oh. are the lane we try to stay in now. You've been to Tokyo, I'm assuming, by now? Yes. I just got back two weeks ago. Amazing. It's amazing. I really loved how they had these intimate, like, five-seaters. Like, five-seat bars, yeah. five-seat sushi, five-seat ramen. That's Japan. Is it just economically? You go, it's mainly because, yeah, economics. Were you in Tokyo, I mean? Yeah, Tokyo, Kyoto. Kind of how they eat. It's all mostly family-based places. And lastly, the timing. They eat fast. When you go out with Japanese people, like, there's a good chance to go three or four places. That's how they do it. You go this place for this, this for that. So you can try all these different things. They're all specialized. That's they're all small. Yeah. Right? It's pretty cool. That's impressive. It's interesting because it seems very similar to you where everyone has so much pride in the work they do there. Oh, yeah. Big time. Like the cab driver. I was like, they were so, it's so specialized. They try to make everything the best. And they all know where the best stuff is. You want the best yakitori, you want the best. You know exactly where to go for all the things, right? It says a lot about their uh, culture. My girlfriend said she came home last week and she went to the toilet and then it didn't open up automatically. And she was like, she sat on the toilet. She's like, oh, we're not in Japan anymore. Right. <laughs> you know, like the Toto. Yeah, those are crazy, right? Japan, honestly, I was like, consider living there. It's clean. It's quiet. You're in the major city. Yeah. Millions and millions of people. And I was walking Negro Make, the river with all the cherry blossoms. Uh-huh. It's not loud. It's beautiful. Peaceful. Yeah. No trash cans either. That was a little hard sometimes, actually. I know. <laughs> I, I had trash in my pockets all the time I was there. Yeah, because you should have it away somewhere. All the food. I think we probably had ramen two to three times a day. The food there is just unbelievable. So good. But when I went there this past fall, I was there for almost a month. I was ready to go. I wanted some different stuff. Food-wise? Uh-huh. And that's my jam. I mean, I love rice. I love fish, you know? <laughs> but by the second, third week, I was like, I want to eat something different. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I feel you. I was thinking about that. I was like, I need a breakfast taco. Right, exactly. So by the 10th trip in the Shinkansen, I was like, I don't want to see another bento <laughs> box. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, we went to a Kaisen, I think is what it's called. Kaisen? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know what any of the food is. Yeah. It was very, uh, it's okay. I was curious behind the scenes of Iron Chef. I think you were on it. Yeah. Is it as dramatic or is it like more boring and then you have a bunch of time? Like what's the behind the scenes of an, uh, being on an Iron Chef? Well, when we went on Iron Chef, they called us. They had done something here locally and came to Iruchi and that's how they found out about us. And they called us and they said... <laughs> Do you want to go? And I said, of course. And said, okay, then you're going to be here in two weeks. Here's the three possible ingredients. It's either going to be scorpion fish, pheasant, or ginger. And I was like, what? (laughs) You're kidding, right? And so for two weeks, Philip and Paul and I, we had to make a menu. And so five courses for four judges for each of those clients. Oh, wow. We got up at every six in the morning every day for two weeks working on the dishes for that. It was crazy. And again, I mean, how full circle is that? Because when I was coming up, my first sensei, we'd go to his apartment off Riverside and watch videos till late night and drink whiskey and smoke weed and hang out. And it was like 22 years old. And we watched those VHS tapes and they were all like TV shows and food shows. And their favorite show was Iron Chef. And I was like watching it in his apartment, sitting in his style, eating soup or whatever he was making. Complete transfixed by it because it's so cool. 
the cool factor was off the charts. Yeah. And the announcing, the Japanese like, ah, da, 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 you know, then you're like, ah, bah, bah, bah. It was. the up and coming young star in that time, Iron Chef Japan was Morimoto in the big silver outfit. He was the coolest one and super creative. And, and that alone, I was like, oh my gosh, so cool. Like the food he's making was so creative. Like I never imagined anything like it. This is before I started making sushi too. So fast forward when they asked me to go on the show, Great, how cool is that, right? Yeah. It's a show I used to watch. And so when we went on the show, we went against Morimoto and like, wow, I can beat him. <laughs> you know what I mean? That studio is in Chelsea Market in New York City. His restaurant, Morimoto, is connected in the same building to the studio. When we actually battled him and his team, he wheeled out a cart from his restaurant into the studio, like loaded with stuff. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? I was like, we're not going to win. We're screwed. It was crazy. It took like eight hours. The filming is eight hours? Yeah, it took all day. The actual filming was like six. We were there from like seven in the morning till two. And they did another film that same day after that. So you're cooking the whole time? Well, the actual hour is a real hour. It's the fastest hour of my life. It was like over. Really? Yeah, it was like that voice that you hear on the show. 30 minutes have elapsed. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> right, it was crazy. But it was cool. What an experience, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. Before you start, they flip a coin. To see who's going to taste first or second. And you want to taste second because I found this out ahead of time. If you taste second, you get more time to cook. You're not supposed to, but you can. Flip the coin and I won. And just from the my training and everything Japanese that I've learned, I mean, Morimoto's an icon. I won and then I said, Morimoto-san, Yoroshiku, which means up to you. Like you choose. No, out of respect. Right, out of respect. Thinking he would go, no, you won. But no, he, <laughs> he goes, second. <laughs> I was like, damn it. So he chose second and I eventually ended up losing. But uh, it was so cool. It was a fun experience. What do you do in the other hours when you're not cooking for the hour? Oh, it's all prep filming, all the setup, all the pre-stuff, all the B-rolls. Do you get to try each other's food? Because it always seems like they only make enough dishes when we're watching. You know? No, no, not at all. I don't think they make an extra dish, but you guys try. We didn't try anything. That's a kind of a bad beat. He made one dish that was kind of sukiyaki konji cooked soup kind of thing. When I was tasting, literally, I'm watching him from the, when I'm standing with the judges. I'm here, look, he's cooking the soup. Like he cooked it a whole another extra hour. Dang it. <laughs> he's going to win. I mean, he's more about it. Yeah, basically. I mean, be able to meet so many people that you never would have a chance to meet before. The point of just talking back and forth. Yeah. You create these friendships and blossom into long-term relationships and what are some of the, that's what, including like my partner daryl who we started all the company with and my wife rebecca you've been in both through the restaurant how did that happen both of them were my customers at my first jobs when i started making sushi how did it go from like you're serving them food to like hey let's be my wife with my wife specifically she was my customer for a while and she was to come in with her boyfriend who worked for dell and it was pretty much love at first sight Really? Yeah, but she was her boyfriend. I was eyeball her and I'd save the best cuts of tuna for her. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> How did it transgress? She, over time, kept seeing at the restaurant. And then, like, fast forward two years, we were about to open Uchi proper next door. And we're prepping and I'm in a panic. And one of my chefs, Michael Brionis, he's like, Chef, you gotta get out of here. We gotta go grab a bite, grab a beer. So we went to a bar called The Bitter End. And we were there having a beer, and then she walked in, and it was like, I don't know, fate. Was she single at that time? Or was she uh -huh. single at the time. 
So at the very end of the bar, like started looking at her and Michael's like, you need to go talk to her. I'm like, I don't do that. I don't pick up girls in bars. Like I'm not going to do that. He goes, if you're going to blow this chance, I end up getting up and going and saying hello to her and the rest is history. Three dogs, three kids. Yeah, it's crazy. And honestly, she didn't recognize me at first. <laughs> she, knew, <laughs> she knew me from, right? Yeah. Because she only saw me at work. And at work, I always wore a hajimaki, which is a bandana. And so when I went to talk to her, she's looking at me like she knows me, but doesn't. And so then I finally go, does this help you at all? <laughs> She goes, oh my God, you're the sushi guy. <laughs> Did she know you gave her better tuna? <laughs> no, she, even, she goes, now. Oh, now she gets like that. I tore the story, but it was cool. And it was at first sight you knew this is the one? Yes, absolutely. It's weird you see that sparkle in somebody's eye, you know, it's just, yeah. it's just there. Like Sometimes I wonder about that because I'm like, when I hear couples that have that, and then I'm like, does it fizzle out? Because sometimes I'm like, oh, it's so exciting. And then you just get kind of tired of it. Well, of course. I mean, time changes everything. I mean, people change separately and together. You know, I was pretty determined because I never felt like that before. Even that first time at the bar, I'm like, when are we going out? And it was like two days before New Year's. And I said, let's go on New Year's Eve. And she's like, I already have a date. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I mean, New Year's Eve, like it's the most romantic holiday, right? It's yeah. Like the magical you kiss. You start your year, all yeah. that stuff. And so I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to mount a mission to find her. And at midnight, I'm going to kiss her. And so I went five places. It's cold. It was like 25 degrees that year. And I went to five places searching for her. I'm kind of a perfectionist like that. Very OCD, very more into planning things. Got to the last place. I went to Hotel San Jose on South Congress. Long story short, uh, I got to be 11.58. And I'm like, ah, it's not going to happen. This is a weird story too, because like I've since then um, become a pretty devout Christian. But back then I wasn't. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to go sit in the middle of Congress. I went in the middle of Congress Avenue right at midnight, 1158, New Year's Eve. Sat down in his style in the middle of the road and prayed. And I said, God, please let me get together with this woman. And uh, she called me the next day. Cool story, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. I thought maybe she'd show up on the street. <laughs> no, no, the no I thought she would too. <laughs> no. <laughs> then we went out and then we started dating. And then I picked her up at her parents' house one night. And then pretty quickly after that, we, you know, kept going out and fell in love and opened Uchi and then we got pregnant and our first daughter was born. All in one year. Oh, that was all in one year? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All in one year. How old were you at the time? I was 32. Okay, so a bit older. I guess that's like the standard age now. Yeah, I guess it was. I mean, and for my generation, because I'm X generation, because I was born in 70, I think most of us kind of screwed off our 20s. It was just kind of time to play, you know what I mean? Figure yeah. out. Luckily, from 23 to 30, I wasn't making sushi all the time. That foundation is what got me to where I am today. Now, one thing, coming back to what you are saying, what was your upbringing like? It sounds like you didn't have Japanese exposure, and then you found out about this culture and went like no, all No, not at all. I grew up in Sarasota, Florida, on the beach, Siesta Key without shoes most of my life from zero to 10. And because you were uh, poor because you're on the beach? <laughs> not literally, <laughs> but I mean, my parents both worked. My dad worked for airlines. My mother worked for a rental car. I just love the beach and everything about Florida. We moved to Houston when I was 10 in 1980, and my father had gotten transferred. His company had gotten bought, and Continental transferred us to Houston. And so we lived just outside the woodlands in Houston. That's where I lived from 10 to 17. It was awesome. Houston was fun. But I never imagined coming here later to Austin. I was going to do a college in, I started in San Marcos, in Southwest Texas. Were you thinking you'd go do art? I was going to be a painter. That was my goal. What happened with that? Here's the thing, like paint is like, you have to have enough money to buy the paint itself. And the canvases and make the canvases and stretch them. 
And it's a point of frustration, if not just straight up anxiety, because you, again, I was starving. I didn't have no money at all from 17 to 27. Like, didn't have a car, didn't have any savings. They're just living paycheck to paycheck. But I wanted to paint. I wanted to be creative. For example, I'd have like $300 and I was like, okay, I'm going to spend 200 on the art and save 100 to eat for the next two weeks. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I would paint a painting and most of the time I'd hate it. Because I wanted to do it again. I wanted to make it better. And there's a lot of stories about famous painters who do this, but a lot of times I just destroy it. I was pissed. It's like, I didn't like it. I have no more money. Can't paint another painting. I'll just destroy it, you know? I saved some of them. I started having some shows. Tried to sell them. Didn't sell any. I don't think that's what I was supposed to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The cool part about it is, you know, sushi itself, again, it's really so artistic. And you get to create... And being a chef real time, you get so many chances and people pay you to do it. Could there be a more perfect job for someone who's to be an artist? Like, awesome. And I get direct feedback. Other chefs in the kitchen, they cook dishes and they sell them in the dining room and stuff. But sushi chef, just like you and I sitting here, you're there. I hand this to you. Here, try that. I can see your face and you eat it. I know immediately if you liked it or not. That made me feel so good about myself. And I was just like, I'm going to go back to work tomorrow. <laughs> You're Every day. Yeah, You're a was, tuna dealer. It was so fun. It was so fun. It was like you're leading people down a path. And you, over time, become pretty close friends with them, with your regular customers especially. You know their likes are, their dislikes. You know where they are in their whole lineage, timeline of sushi itself, how much they've had, what they like, what they don't like. And so when they come in, in your brain, you're always like, I remember they're like this, I remember they like that. And so you always want to make them try one thing they haven't had before. So they're intrigued, they want to come back. So I'm hooking them every time, every time. It's interesting. I wanted to take that idea of that experience and translate that to the tables. And that was the original idea for Uchi when we started. Just more one-on-one -on -one direct contact. Have the servers be able to have the autonomy to create the experience and ask the right questions. Have you had sushi before? What are you coming for? Is it like a big meal? Is it, are you celebrating or are you just having dinner? Is it casual? How much time do you have? And how can I help you? Well, that's a wrap. I hope you liked the episode as much as I did. While you're listening to this, yes, right now, I want you to do a few things. First, go check out one of Tyson's restaurants at uchikoaustin.com. If you're in Texas, make a reservation and check it out. Or just go look them up on Instagram at uchikoaustin or uchiaustin. They also have one in Dallas and in Houston. Second, I love when you say hi to me in public. I was at the Rockets game last night and Keith Wolf said hi to me and then punched me in the wiener, yes, because I was wearing a Warriors hat. Okay, I don't want you to punch me, <laughs> please, but say hi. I love when you guys say hi online, offline, or even via review on iTunes or Overcast. It really makes me smile when you say what's up and I feel really appreciative when you do. Finally, go text someone you love them. Yo dog, let's go eat sushi and talk about the meaning of life. Have a super magical day. What are you eating for lunch today? <laughs>